Bilbo thought he was winning, right? Because he was going for the Arkenstone and that was kind of where he was set off and that was what he was trying to do. And so as he got closer and closer to the Arkenstone, he thought he was winning. But at the same time, he's revealing all this information. Like, and the game is really like to obfuscate. And so he's not winning at that point. Like he's starting to lose the thread and lose the game because he's so focused on the different prize. And so that idea of like, he ultimately loses and they go and Smog goes and attacks Lake Town, right? And there's like rains death and destruction down because like Bilbo lost the thread of the game. Like he focused on like a different prize than ultimately the game he was playing. Welcome, friends, to episode 244 of the Ink to Film podcast, where we read the book and then see the movie. I'm filmmaker James Bailey. And I'm writer Luke Elliott. And this week, we discuss Peter Jackson's 2013 film, The Hobbit, The Desolation of Smog. And joining us this week in Erebor is an author, folklorist, and the executive director of Willamette Writers, Kate Ristal. Welcome to the show, Kate. Thank you. It's great to be here. Thank you so much for joining us on this second Hobbit film. I hope you're enjoying your journey in J.R.R. Tolkien's universe with the the novel. And I assume you can't just jump in on the second film, right? You probably had to watch the first film into the second films to discuss this. So definitely. And it was great to go back through the books and through the films and and to like re-experience The Hobbit. Um, a little bit older and uh, no wiser, though. No wiser. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, well, I have a lot of questions for you, uh, especially with your folklore background. Uh, but real quick, I want to get out a little bit of housekeeping. Um, first off, I just wanted to say that our, our thoughts go out to uh, all of those affected by Hurricane Ian. Um, I know we have a lot of Floridian listeners. We're both uh, one of us is in Florida and I'm from Florida. And a lot of people have been affected by that storm. And it's looking pretty horrific from everything I've been seeing here. Sometimes it's hard because I'm so removed from it. Um, so, yeah, just wanted to make sure uh, I, I got that out there and, you know, hopefully you are all staying safe and, uh, you know, relatively healthy and, and yeah, dry, <laughs> I guess. Um, and, and, you know, we're thinking about you. I also wanted to say uh, in a completely different kind of note, um, my short story, What Good is a Sad Backhoe, which was published in Reckoning 6 uh, this year, is now available to read for free on their website, and I'll have a link to that in the show notes. If you'd like to check out some writing of mine, uh, I'm proud of it, and I would be delighted for you to do that. Okay, so Kate, not only are you an author of middle grade and young adult novels, uh, which I'm seeing we got Clockbreakers, Wild Wings, and Shadow Girl. Uh, so how many books is that, first off, in this, in this you know, space of writing uh, for a younger audience? Now I'm taking some time to actually like count them out, but uh, <laughs> I've written three young adult books and three middle grade books and then another middle grade book. And I'm in the middle of working on a new middle grade nonfiction series that's all about mythological creatures. So it's it's amazingly fun and it's, it's great working with kids and writing with kids. Um, and then I also do uh, some writing for for adults and for parents uh, and working on adult fantasy and adult fantasy stories that are usually have some background in folklore and in mythology and kind of 
the stories that we tell each other and why they matter. And so I kind of pull and pick at those and, and find the things that resonate. I love that. I, I, as I did last time, watch the appendices, which is a, it's a quite a journey. It's well longer than the film itself uh, for this extended edition. And uh, they went into a lot of detail. There were some like Tolkien scholars and some other people who, who they had come on and sort of look into the background of things like Beowulf and some of the older folklore stories that, Tolkien was drawing inspiration of specific mythical entities like a dragon, but also like similar story beats and and things like that. So I'd love to get your perspective as we go through on like if you if there's sections that you think were inspired by certain stories. Yeah, and that's great. And I know it's inevitable that we'll probably talk about The Lord of the Rings, too. And um, (laughs) the feel of those films like you you get a sense of all these different cultures as as they travel through Middle Earth and as you get all these different perspectives, too. And it kind of narrows in um, with The Hobbit on a few different cultures and a few different um, experiences and narratives. Um, so I think it, it in that way can be a little richer because you can find out a little bit more in the movie specifically, not as much in the book, which we'll talk about too. Okay. Well, I wanted to ask you. So we talked a lot about The Hobbit in our book uh, episode we did on it, but um, I, I was sort of struggling to categorize the book. Like I know he wrote it for a younger audience, um, but this was at a time before I think a lot of these categories were really codified. And I'm just curious, as you think about The Hobbit today, would you consider that a middle grade novel, young adult novel, or does it not fit those categories? You know, it's funny because there's also those Bildungsroman, like the stories about uh, like growing up and changing and becoming um, becoming who you're supposed to be or who you're meant to be. And The Hobbit definitely feels like that. So it feels like a book that's like written for, um, not really written for kids, written for adults, but it has so much of like that narrative and that experience of of growing up and becoming something different and becoming, yeah, just becoming. So I think it feels less like a middle grade or less like a young adult to me, but it does have that like Bildungsroman type of feel to it. I guess what made me think that it was kind of that middle grade area was like all the songs and it to me it was written in a way that seemed like it was very accessible for a young reader. Um, as a young reader myself, when I first encountered it, I found it really easy to read. Whereas when I went on to The Lord of the Rings, I felt like it was a stark difference and I, I kind of bounced off of that as a young reader. Um, so before the, these categories were really a thing in publishing, at least, it seems like Tolkien was at least somewhat aware of, uh, of a target audience age category. Yeah, that's a great point. And, you know, he was also in conversation with C.S. Lewis. And so mm. a lot of their books, like, and the, um, you know, the stories that they were telling, like, can hit both audiences, like can hit those general audiences and can also hit the the younger audiences. Um, and I think they have that universal appeal because they're that, those stories about, like, like I was saying about becoming or about like, um, you know, moving along on a journey. And, um, you know, with the Lord of the Rings, you have where you're following along on the um, the journey to destroy the ring. Um, and in The Hobbit, you're following along on the journey to the Lonely Mountain. And so being able to like follow along on those journeys is is kind of universal. Totally makes sense, you know, and, and I enjoy it as an adult as well. Um, I'm curious, what was your, what's your experience like with Lord of the Rings in general and specifically The Hobbit? Like when did you first read it or see it or how did you first encounter it? Yeah, so I, I always consider myself lucky because... I spent a lot of like my growing up um, reading a ton of books. Like I definitely am a reader, um, but I wasn't reading like kind of some of the base basic texts of like sci-fi fantasy. So I got to come to them as like a um, an older um, an older teenager or young adult. So I got to read Dune when I was um, when I was older, and so I got to look at it completely differently. I read Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit 
Um, oh, let me think. Nope, I have no conception of time. I won't even make it up. Um, sometime um, when I was like in early college. Um, okay. So I got to read it at like kind of some formative points in for me as a storyteller. So also thinking about like how he's telling the story and like what are these little pieces and how do they all fit together and um, and then getting to see the movies like pretty shortly after and getting to see how how the movies told the story differently and um, and thinking about that and that being something that was uh, kind of like a grounding experience for me as a writer too i feel like everybody we've brought on has this whole unique journey with lord of the rings and uh and the hobbit in particular and i feel like it influences the way we view these stories like when we encounter them because you know for james and i they were both very formative uh things for us as children and for me like going back to like when i was like three or four years old when i first saw the animated uh animated version of the hobbit which we just covered on our patreon by the way um so that that's fresh in my mind now um, it's just a, it's such an interesting story. And yeah, there's so many decisions that get made when you're adapting it and, uh, for better and worse, which I'm sure we will get into for this. Um, I guess real quick before we leave your books behind, um, they are going to all be in our bookshop, uh, which I'll have a link to, uh, in the show notes, um, check them out there. But where would you suggest people look if they're interested in stories like the Hobbit? Uh, which of your series would should they look at? So they're all based in mythology. The um, the one that's out right now, uh, Wild Wings, that just came out recently, um, it's based in Welsh mythology. So there's a lot of those kind of like themes coming through, but it takes place in contemporary Portland. So you get like kind of this epic background and this epic storytelling happening. Um, but at the same time, you get a kid going through his like everyday experience. So I feel like it feels really real for kids because they can identify with like the the everydayness and like the going to school and going on a field trip and like talking to your dad. But then at the same time, you know, there's uh there's wings <laughs> and there's like, there's, you know, mythological creatures. And um, so that's definitely a story that uh, people who like the Hobbit would just dive right into. Cool. All right. And then uh, I, the other thing I just wanted to pick your brain on was, so I was looking in your background, it says you have a master's in folklore from the university of Oregon. Um, and, you know, obviously the story is steeped in folklore. And I think, you know, one of the main things I want to talk about in this episode are dragons. And Smog in particular being, to me, one of the most iconic dragons in all of fantasy. And uh, is that something, is, is, are dragons a particular type of mythological creature that you studied in, in your folklore background or came up a lot? So as a folklorist, I studied something that's incredibly relevant to us during the pandemic, and that's how we form communities online. So, oh, cool. <laughs> so that came back and was really relevant right now, obviously, like um, as we've been doing all this online stuff. So, so that was part of my focus. And the other focus was on like mythology and stories and kind of what I was saying, like the narratives and the things that we, the stories that we tell over and over again. Um, so that was kind of what was interesting to me, um, both as a reader and a folklorist. Um, and then specifically, oh, what was the next part of your question? Dragons. Dragons. What? <laughs> How did I forget dragons? So uh, <laughs> it's in my office right now, I think there's probably like 45 dragons. Um, and it started as like, I just had a couple dragons, but I actually spent a year drawing dragons. Oh, so wow. I drew a dragon every single day. Um, oh, wow. And it's a lot of dragons. Yeah, it's a lot of dragons. And I don't know how to draw. <laughs> and I got better at drawing dragons. But that was like literally it. So I don't think I, I like I didn't expand my like ability to draw. But it was great from like an artist's perspective of, 
you know, there's things that you're not good at, like, and like encouraging yourself to practice things and get better at things and work at something that's outside your experience. Like it just challenges you as an artist to think differently. And I started to think about myself as an artist then, um, in terms of that, like creativity, that like ability to like look at the world slightly differently. Um, and so that definitely happened as I spent a year drawing dragons. <laughs> so I drew, you know, like the big epic dragons with like all of their like scales and spikes and horns. Um, but I probably fell more towards the like the cute little kawaii dragons with like big eyes and <laughs> and like, uh, you know, tiny little wings and like little hands and tiny feet. Um, and so it was a good experience to like jump in there and think about like what makes a dragon like. And I do some things that were definitely not dragons um, <laughs> that I tried to make dragons, but they were instead like maybe a T-Rex, possibly a lizard, <laughs> um, sometimes a bird. It's so fascinating to hear you talk about this because for the formation of Smog in this film, they, they there's an extensive like 30 minute section of the appendices that you can watch where they talk about designing smog and what they were looking for and the different they went with really crazy ones where one was almost like a hammerhead shark that had its eyes like out here and they had they went through so many different designs and they really were just kind of throwing everything at the wall trying to see what stuck and eventually they kind of landed on what what we got but there's iterations that even in the it's funny there's an inconsistency we can mention here in the first film we see smog uh, attacking Erebor and and kind of stomping on people using front legs to stomp people and Smog doesn't have front legs in that way. Smog's legs are like wings, but on the once they once they released it in the, the in the uh, extended edition and and for home release they actually like went back in and re-edited. So in the first film they they fixed their inconsistency because they didn't have the design down until this film, even though they were kind of referencing him in the first film. Wow. Um, and and they also brought up something I wanted to ask you about with your knowledge of dragons, um, the time period that that Tolkien was writing about these dragons was sort of, we saw dragons go from being these like mythical entities that were really powerful and t- should be feared into sort of more like uh, clever and friendly dragons. And then I think Tolkien was kind of pushing back against that and wanted to go back to the sort of mythological, like deadly dragon with Smaug. And I don't know if you if you know the history of all that really well, but like what what do you think that was? Like why was there that period that we, we got into like happy, friendly dragons that were sort of just clever you know, mythical beings? And then what's the significance between these like massive, scary ones and then those as well? Because you were talking about the Kauai dragons as well and like why that was something that was standing out to you. And I love this idea of like kind of the the unpredictability of dragons, right? So like dragons can be like beautiful and majestic and magical and amazing and something that like, you know, the first time you see it, um, you see smog in uh, in the Hobbit movie, like, you know, you just get this feeling of like, yeah, like <laughs> excitement and like possibility and joy. Um, but then at the same time, yeah, like as as Tolkien was writing, um, as we're thinking about dragons, we're seeing like the real destructive nature of dragons and like that that possibility that can be like endless and imaginative and flying and, you know, soaring to the skies can also be like absolutely deadly with, you know, like, like you're saying, like the stomping and the fire and and the total destruction, which we see in Lake Town too, where you just see at one point during one of the movies, it's a big circle Lake Town and it's all on fire. You know, throughout the movie, we get to see this idea that like dragons are like clever and funny. And there's like callbacks to that moment of when 
Gandalf, not Gandalf, sorry. We're going to talk about Gandalf. <laughs> um, when Bilbo was uh, was getting the ring from Gollum, right? And they're having that, that riddle contest. And there's kind of like a back and forth and like a funniness. But then at the same time, there's just this menace, like underneath that whole scene. And it's in both the books and in the movies. And that's also what we get with Smog, where we have, you know, this clever conversation and this this funny back and forth and this repartee. But then at the same time, Bilbo's watching every single move of Smog. Like, what's he going to do with his wings? What's he doing with his legs? Where's his arms? You think of the Smog that we got in the animated film. You think about like Howl's Moving Castle, more like, you know, Eastern dragons that are more serpents, like sky serpents and mm-hmm. just the different designs that we get and the iterations that it takes. And the, some of these scholars were bringing up the idea of dragons being something that people have been fascinated by for centuries and thousands of years. And there's drawings in all different cultures and the ways that it, that it like manifests. And so it's it's cool to think that it's it's this like global fascination for generations and and it's like kind of the mythical entity it feels like you know it's the one that people think of when they first think of fantasy and i i think at least made me fall in love with fantasy i read a book by jane yolen called dragon's blood and when i was very young and you know that that was one of my early introductions to the idea of dragons and having a dragon as as a pet or as a friend um and yeah love that love smog uh i always heard that or there's a theory that maybe the um, the bones of dinosaurs were being found by ancient civilizations, and that's where some of this dragon myth comes from, is they were trying to figure out what was this thing, and they're finding these giant bones, and you are talking about the T-Rex earlier, and I'm like, yeah, T-Rex and dragons actually might share some, some, some DNA in a way, because people might have been finding bones like that and then imagining uh, these, these creatures. Um, it, does that line up with what you've heard? Like, is that possibly where this stuff come from? I don't know what kind of like stuff you got into with your folklore backgrounds. I'm curious if, it, if they try and tie it to like what people were actually reacting to in the sort of natural world. Yeah, that that reaction too, and like the imagining and the uncovering, right? Because like yeah. you're uncovering all of these bones. I think that's a great like analogy for what's happening as they're um, finding out more and more about like what dragons could be and starting telling stories about dragons and. Um, and so there were things that they didn't understand, right? And they're like outside of their understanding and outside of their imagination. Um, and so they started to like create stories and tell stories. And one of my favorite things is, you know, when you look at a map and they say something like, here be dragons, right? Yeah. So this idea that these things that are outside of our understanding, like um, can be really menacing, can also have like these wonderful uh, possibilities and um, they're beautiful places that we could go to, but also, here be dragons. So this yeah. idea that we don't know. It's like shorthand for just danger. Like anything they didn't know, like sailing the high seas, there's danger in there. Oh, it's sea monsters. It's this, it's that. To just represent like a universal, like don't go there, it's dangerous. <laughs> so Kate, uh, I w- I'm curious, what were your thoughts as far as an adaptation of An Unexpected Journey? Since you didn't join us last week, I'd love to hear your thoughts on it and sort of where that movie left you and what you were picking up coming into this film. Having read The Hobbit um, and The Hobbit, the book, like when you first started reading it, it has uh, like, it just has this feeling of like warm bread, right? Like, and there's so much discussion of food and like Bilbo is like thinking about home and it has like this feeling of home and you start with this feeling of home and then, you know, the the book takes us away from home um, with him constantly having like these callbacks and thoughts about home. Um, which the movie plays up a little bit too. Um, so going into the film for the very first time when I saw it, um, 
when it came out in what 20, 2012, it was so much more epic, I think, than I had imagined in my head. Like I had imagined a story that was, uh, you know, that was just that was smaller, like mm-hmm. um, that really focused on like Bilbo um, and focused on like kind of his journey and like meeting the, the dwarves. And um, I knew that that was totally not what I was in for. Like the second, like the dwarves kind of like start coming into the house, like <laughs> because it, it instead of it having that feeling of like kind of unexpected, like what's happening? Whoa, it has this feeling of like dread. And like, like I said that word before, just that menacing feel like, you know, and the dark music in the background and, and then Thorin appears for the first time and you're like, no, seriously, dude, he's just, he's a dwarf. Like, (laughs) and there was a, a lot of callbacks to like Aragorn and trying to make Thorin like, just have this feeling of like gravitas. Right. And I understood it from like, you know, wanting to like be able to tell that story. But yeah, I think I was going in thinking I was seeing Bilbo's journey and the story that we ultimately saw throughout the whole three movies is from lots of different perspectives, like, which I think was ultimately good. And, you know, it goes to that, if we're talking about that bread with butter thing, right? It's basically, we have a story that maybe could have been told in um, one or two movies that they spread out over three. So if you're spreading that story out over three, you're spreading that butter thin, like, what's the story? Like, what are you going to focus on? I'm not sure if you were able to listen to our past coverage, but just to rehash it a little bit, Guillermo del Toro was originally attached to this project and was going to direct just two films. And I wanted to correct something, actually, from last week. I think I implied that... Uh, they knew sort of from the outset that they were going to do three films. Like once they started filming uh, these three films with Peter Jackson, and it turns out that they were also gearing to shoot two films. They shot two films and then realized after they finished principal photography that they wanted to go back and do pickups and add back in more and have a third film. Mm -hmm. So they took effectively, they shot two films and then took the end of the first film made that the beginning of a second film and took the beginning of a third film and made it the end of the second film and filled in the gaps in the middle there. And just that idea of going in to make two films and then in in the edit trying to fix things and then trying to fit moments and scenes in to sort of flesh it out to make three full films. Something that I didn't realize was that, you know, that was kind of a Peter Jackson decision. It seemed like more of a studio thing. I I think the studio was excited to do it as well. Um, But it comes back to I think there's a completionist in Peter Jackson that he wanted to fill out as much on screen of J.R.R. Tolkien's world that he could. And I I think it hurts these movies as individuals. But if you're maybe a massive Tolkien fan and want to see everything, it's it's there to be seen. um, But it might it might not be the pacing that you're looking for with them. And I would I would add to that that, yeah, the massive Tolkien fan in me, like in, you know, 2012, 2013, 2014 was like, yes, like I'm going to watch more of these films and I'm going to complain because like I'm a Tolkien fan. But but at the same time, like I'm going to appreciate these films and getting to see like, um, yeah, this much of this story like and built out and. yeah, and made bigger and larger than life. You said you think ultimately maybe a good thing. I'm not so sure. Um, I I really think this movie struggles by expanding out as much as it did the, these these films. Um, I would have liked to see that that closer uh, story told mostly about Bilbo's journey, um, which more closely aligns with the book. Obviously, that's not what we got, um, and ultimately, that's fine. But and then you're talking James about the way they had to edit this thing and they kind of in the edit room made it into three movies. That just seems like a bad decision to me going in. Like 
second movies are already hard, right? The middle yeah. film is already the hardest one to figure out. And then you're just going to kind of create one out of thin air. That's like, that's a tough, tall task. It's bizarre. Um, yeah, I guess the only thing I can say is, yeah, I, I guess Peter Jackson seemed to seem to get really happy about the idea of bringing in all this extra stuff, all this connective tissue to Lord of the Rings uh, backstory. We get, you know, flashbacks and, and all this stuff. And um I don't know. Someone needed to like rein him in. He really needed someone to rein him in because I think like just because you think that's fun and cool and you're like overloading your movie with it, that doesn't mean you're making good films um, and you're 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 telling a tight story that people are gonna. I don't know. It's like you've already made movies that are like legendary, I guess, in Lord of the Rings that people are gonna you know talk about forever. So maybe he just felt like these ones he could just kind of throw something together, but. It just worries me that, like, I, I do I do feel like it tarnishes a little bit. Same thing with, like, George Lucas, right? Like, unfortunately, it can tarnish the previous work, even if people still look at it as being great. Or, like, the Matrix films, right? Like, the following Matrix films some somewhat tarnishes that original. I disagree with the, the like, something tarnished. I can still watch the Lord of the Rings films and pretend that nothing ever happened with The Hobbit and enjoy them as much as I ever did. Uh, I, I guess I'm saying I don't feel that way, but there is a contingent of fans who will feel that way. If you bring it up, they're going to bring up the misses as well. Like, they can't just talk about it in a, in a vacuum somewhere. And, like, looking at Peter Jackson now, like, he, he did this, the Beatles documentary. I don't know if you saw that. And he's done um, that World War One documentary. And like the way that he's kind of switched his gears in his career, like I, he's doing amazing things, things that no one else can do. And he sort of holds you can see the way that like the skills that he got on these films enabled to, to hold all of this material and boil it down to something that is manageable. It Like that's a massive skill and no one else could tackle. I think there is like an I can't remember the the amount of footage from those Beatles archives but mm. it was a lot and he boiled it down to like a few hours and it's amazing it's crazy to see and he's sort of like this historian at this point he's, yeah. he's taking all these historical things and i think he was kind of doing some of that here with the hobbit um for better or for worse i just like the effort again the the appendices bring to light for me a lot of the what actually happens to make these things work and the crunch time that they put themselves in and i was uh, uh, you know an old adage is like do you want it fast cheap or good mm. and you pick two pick of them two, yeah <laughs> and and this is a situation where i think they pick two and it's you get it fast and you get it relatively cheap, cheap. <laughs> i guess because they're doing green screen and then it's like either sacrificing good or you know you're seeing a lot of the the effects of how how thin this production has, has been spread just by some of the visual effects not being finished and some of the shots looking unprofessional at times, uh, specifically talking about the GoPro shots, which are so jarring to me in that river sequence. Every time I watch it, to totally takes me out of it. Um, and, you know, they're, they were trying to do a lot. They're trying to do this 48 frames per second thing and 3D for this new sort of, I think off the heels of an avatar, they want to have this like this theatr theatrical spectacle that people can go see and, 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 it was a lot of things happening all at once. And I think if they just tried to not meet those crunch times, if they had the time to spread it out and make it with with whatever, you know, timeline they they saw fit, it, it could have helped a lot. And then, yeah, just just spreading it, obviously, as, as thin as they did, the story starts to feel like it doesn't have a this this film specifically doesn't feel like it has a beginning, middle and end. It doesn't feel like it stands alone as a film. It feels like something that it's just another episode almost in, in the journey, which th there's something to be said for that. Maybe the, the, there's good things there as well. But for me, like this film always felt like it it um, has great parts as, as a lot of it, the other stuff does. But I mean, like you look at something like Smog is 
clearly like a cinematic achievement, but at the same time, do we care enough? I felt myself just caring less and less about the journey along the way. And I get excited for the smog stuff. And then that sort of comes to an abrupt halt at the end of this film. And then it, it leaves us with like, okay, what, why is there another three hours coming? Yeah, I guess just to f- round out our general thoughts about this movie before we get into specifics, um, Kate, like just as your general reaction to this movie, positive, negative, somewhere in between and, and any, any particular things stand out. Yeah, and um, as James was talking to this made me think specifically about, uh, you know, as you were watching The Hobbit, like uh, as we watched it the first time, like it brought all those callbacks to The Lord of the Rings. Um, and if it's a choice, like between like, oh, what movie do we want to watch, The Hobbit or The Lord of the Rings? Like 95% of the time, we're probably going to watch The Lord of the Rings. And I've watched The Lord of the Rings over and over and over again, like because it has, you know, it has more staying power, I think, than The Hobbit does. Um, because like I was saying, The Hobbit was trying to do epic things with a story that was more closer to home, like, um, and more about the journey. Um, and then we end up with a third movie that is a big giant battle that was maybe 10 pages in the book. So, so my general reaction is like, I, I love the Hobbit because I love the Hobbit. Like, um, but I think it, it, it's better if we see it in terms of like all of the other, um, things that came out with it, like the Lord of the Rings. And then also now the Rings of Power series, like it fits mm-hmm. in well with, with all of those. Luke and I have been talking about how that the Rings of Power is making me appreciate more of the stuff that was added in these Hobbit yeah. films, for sure. You get attached and you get invested. Like I always felt the Silmarillion was really intimidating. And now I really, I'm like starting to feel like I want to go read it because I have the attachment from Rings of Power. So hopefully at some point I'll dive into that. So for me in this movie, uh, it, it is this, weird orphan of a middle movie that doesn't have a clear um focus (laughs) and and i really thought it was going to be the the smog movie and i guess it still is but we spend so much time doing things that are less interesting and i think the the pacing really really drags in this one um, I think every time I've seen it, there's been a moment towards the middle where I start feeling my eyelids droop and I start getting sleepy. Not a good thing from your exciting fantasy movie. Um, and it hit me again this time. And I'm like, I'm not tired right now. Why am I getting like, I just feel myself like disconnecting. And the unfortunate effect of that is that when good adaptation choices do come around, sometimes I'm not giving them like enough credit. And so I'm trying to be better about that of like, just because I hated this edition and I hated this thing they did here doesn't mean that when they did something smart later that that thing wasn't smart, right? Like, so I'm trying to give them credit instead of just being like, I, I don't like this movie, I'm checking out. Thinking of it that way as I watched, I found more to like than I remember when I originally saw it. Um, but it didn't change the fact that a lot of the movie doesn't work for me. And by comparison to the first movie, I think this movie is definitely a step down. Um, because a lot of the problems have just expanded and and <laughs> grown up and gotten worse. And a lot of what I loved about the first movie is now long in the past and, and nearly forgotten. <laughs> um, so, yeah, that's where I'm at with this one, I guess. And we talked about how we were optimistic last week, right? Like leaving the theater after Unexpected Journey, we were optimistic that they could sort of pick it up and, and continue to to make it better as it went on. And it doesn't seem like this is a step in the right direction. Well, it also feels to me like this is a movie that got so caught up in trying to create spectacle to try and like you were talking about, use this high frame rate, use this 3d effect. And so many of the scenes got 
kind of poisoned by that. Like I'm seeing it at times and they're making decisions that are clearly like, I want this to pop out and I want this to pop out and I want this to look really cool in 3D and you know, it just doesn't, it's like, that's not a good way to design your scenes in my opinion. And it looks hokey. It looks, it looks deliberately done for spectacle and it just doesn't stand this test test of time in the way that movies should, if they're well-made, I think. A couple things that we should know, should have talked about this already. We actually watched the extended edition. So that's 20 minutes of additional footage added into the theatrical release. And I think you can really feel it in this one. Whereas the last film, I feel like it was probably about the same. This one, I, I was like, there's definitely cuts that were I, I, these are some new scenes for me that I haven't seen before and they deserve to stay on the cutting room floor because <laughs> yeah. some of them were while cool that they decided to flesh it out things like all the stuff that they added in in Lake Town it was just like so the politics and the things that, that was excessive and added to the runtime the fight scenes all, there's if I walked in after Lord of the Rings and you told me they were gonna Peter Jackson was gonna make Hobbit films the fight scenes were not the thing that I thought that was gonna sort of make me bored but in this case a lot of the fight scenes i just started being like i don't care what's happening right now and there are so many of them it's like every single i would say like every 20 minutes or so there's a there's some extended fight scene where things are happening and it's hard to follow and a bit off-putting and you could just take scissors to this film and cut it up and and make it closer to what we you have in the in the novel and and you just get a better product. This just feels so overstuffed. And we did, and we haven't mentioned yet, but there's the scene in Markwood where they're wandering around and they're just out of it and they're spacey. And it's like a, you know, kind of like this enchanted druggy scene. Um, and th- th- it's actually at that part of the movie where you're like, is, are we, can we just stop for a little bit here? Like, can we just cut out like at least 45 minutes of this? Like, cause it felt really long and it felt like that muddy middle of, of a book or of a movie. Um, and it was like the extended, uh, the extended drug sequence. I felt like I, like you said, I felt like I was getting really intoxicated. <laughs> I was like, am I high right now? What is happening? Am I on, am I on acid with this film? And then that eventually goes into the spider stuff too. And I'm just like, Oh God, this is so much, so much is going on here. And you know, some of that needed to stay, but you just felt there was like 10, 20 minutes in that section that could have been cut out and still get all the major story beats we need and have it be more satisfying. So yeah, the extended edition, I would not recommend in this case. So I wanted to defend our choice to do this a little bit because people listening might go, why did you do it then? You know, you're not giving it its best chance by watching the, the theatrical release. We did it because we just like to be completionists and we want to see all the material there is Um, I do wish there was a function I could turn on where it would show me a little symbol in the top right hand corner or something when a scene is the is an extended edition scene so I can know, okay, I'm getting bonus material here. I know I understand why they don't do that. They want it to be seamless, but I wish it was an option you could just turn on because there's so many times I'm like, is this this feels like an extended scene, but I'm not sure. And I really wanted to know. Somebody created a playlist on YouTube after I finished the film. I went because I needed to know. I felt that that was part of I should have been informed on which was extended. And there's like you can go through and watch all the extended edition as like a playlist and see which scenes were added. And that helped me get context for okay. the Lake Town scenes that were unnecessary, the orc scenes that were unnecessary. So you might know if I ask like, hey, was this was this added? You might know. OK, yeah, good. I'll let you know uh, the nasty eating the balls thing. That was added. Okay, that was I extended. figured. Yeah. So I also, I don't think I've ever seen the extended edition until this time because there were scenes I did not remember at all. Yeah, I don't think I have either. Yeah, so, I mean, at the very least, that's something to say. Like, at least I'm seeing some new stuff, which is kind of interesting. Sure. <laughs> and can I also add, so, you know, we've talked about like our different uh, viewing experiences too. I also had the additional viewing experience of uh, re-watching this with my 11-year-old. Oh. Like, and <laughs> oh, wow. So it's always interesting to see like his reactions to things. Like, and, yeah. 
and remember like you know who the viewers are right and so like having me as a viewer versus having him as a viewer where like he's losing his mind like during some of the the fight battle sequences and like he probably in like two years would be losing his mind at the ball sequence like (laughs) but meanwhile i'm just like get this over get this over don't let him realize what's actually happening (laughs) yeah out of curiosity like what what scene was he enthralled was it was it the magical journey that i feel like i would want as a kid i think in some parts uh it was the magical journey um he loved like he absolutely loved smog like um like every single scene that had smog in it like his eyes were just like hey, me locked too. to the screen <laughs> i was gonna say yeah i'm pretty close to that as well those so. are my favorite scenes in the movie anytime smog's on screen yeah and he actually you know 11 year olds love battles like so mo- the third movie like yeah we we watched them all like uh, oh you did back nice. to back this weekend and like and yeah he was in heaven he's like this is the best weekend because i'm just watching <laughs> so much movies <laughs> that's cool that's really fun so Gandalf and Thorin Oakenshield meet at the Prancing Pony and Gandalf convinces Thorin to take back Erebor and the Lonely Mountain. Twelve months later, Thorin and his company are pursued by Azog and his orc party. They are ushered along by Gandalf to the nearby home of Beorn, a skin changer who can take the form of a bear. That night, Azog is summoned to Dol Guldur by the Necromancer, who commands him to marshal his forces for war. Azog then delegates the hunt for Thorin to his son Bolg. The following day, Beorn escorts the company to the borders of Mirkwood, where Gandalf discovers black speech imprinted on an old ruin. This and a prior request by Galadriel urge him to investigate the tombs of the Nazgul. He warns the company to remain on the path and leaves them. Upon entering the forest, they lose their way and are ensnared by giant spiders. Bilbo then sets about freeing the dwarves with the help of his recently acquired invisibility ring. He subsequently drops the ring and first begins to understand its dark influence after he brutally kills a creature to retrieve it. Okay, so there's a lot there to react to. Um, let's back it all the way up to the start of this movie. Uh, we see a flashback to Thorne and Gandalf first meeting at the Prancing Pony, which is a nice like callback to a Lord of the Rings thing, I guess. Um, but it, it immediately starts, and we see a Peter Jackson cameo, by the way. Eating yeah. a carrot. Eating a carrot. <laughs> Um, it was cool, but also like it's in, it's starting the movie off with the stuff that I'm not as big a fan of, which is all this interconnective, like we're tying it all into the Lord of the Rings, which to me still mm-hmm. casts a shadow over this movie because it feels like the real story while this other thing's going on. And like, I don't know that that's a good way to position this movie as far as like making it work on its own. It's like you're constantly like whispering about this other thing that's actually way more important. Yeah, I agree. In terms of focus for this film. It does. It hurts it. Right. It's a, it's like I understand they need a starting point. They need something that feels like a starting point to reignite the adventure and like sort of understand the journey again. But in this situation, it feels like it's it's like, oh, but there's a more there's more going on kind of with this Gandalf stuff that we get into eventually. Um, but I did hear and, and this is something that I've been trying to find more about is what they're pulling from. Right. Like I know that they're pulling from the appendices and they're pulling from the Silmarillion in certain certain situations. And it turns out most of what they're pulling from is, this scene takes place in the appendices for the return of the king. So if you re, if you go to the appendices in Lord of the Rings, this scene is sort of retroactively given as context to Gandalf actually meeting with Thorin and setting off the journey for the hobbit which is like they wanted to put that on film so the you know again the tolkien completionist had, at work here i guess that makes sense um <laughs> which is fine okay it's fine i don't know there's a reason that it's the appendices and not like in the book 
let's talk about Bjorn because, uh, you know, it's interesting character in the book. He's, he's again, like it's written for a younger audience to me. So it's very whimsical. You got like talking dogs are walking around on their hind legs and, um, it's kind of silly. And then you, you, you take it into this movie where you're, you're like, you were talking about Kate with the, the tone is a little different, right? It's trying to strike a similar tone to Lord of the Rings where everything's more epic and serious and dangerous. And you have Bjorn, the skin changer, who's this really scary bear, but then also looks kind of like a weird wolf man when he changes back into a person. And there's this whole like funny scene that plays out with him and Thorin. And the dwarves are being revealed as added for the extended okay. edition. Well, that's from the book, kind of. Um, so my whole point is it comes back to like the tones are weird, right? Like at times you got the tone of a child's uh, a movie, movie made for children. And then at times you have this tone of serious adult epic stuff from Lord of the Rings and you're trying to do it at the same time. And it always to me is jarring and it feels like the movie can't decide what it actually is. Uh, I wanted to ask Kate, uh, I, with in, in the appendices, they were talking a little bit about bears and in, in folklore and mythology and the ways like the certain cultures that sort of saw bears as um, like mythical creatures in, in a sense. And like, do you think that this is something that, Tolkien was do, can you point to anything maybe that that Tolkien was referencing or, or what what this character represents because it is a weird it's kind of a one-off character in Lord of the Rings in Middle Earth yeah and that skin changer idea like is definitely there's there's something that you can do in folklore where you can go and you can look through and people have cataloged all these different like themes and all these different things that have happened like um and so you can go and you can search for um like a topic so you can go and search for skin changers and you can see all the different stories that people have told about skin changers um but specifically with like bears bears usually to me and there's lots of other stories but the the stories that immediately came to me are um, stories wrapped up in like Russian folklore um, where you have like big giant bears. Um, if any of y'all have also read like the bear and the nightingale is a, is a great series um, that also goes through uh, Russian folklore specifically. So that, that bear um, kind of being able to change form too. So it goes for me, it also goes back to that idea of you don't know what to expect. Like, and so, Luke, if you're looking at it from that perspective of if this is a, a movie for kids, a movie for adults, like for kids, like sometimes adults are like unpredictable. Right. And so you don't know what you're going to get. So sometimes, you know, you go over to somebody's house and it's like great. And there's like lots of honey and bread and it's a big party. And apparently there's giant ponies in the house. Um, and sometimes you go over to somebody's house and they're a giant bear and a super jerk. <laughs> um, and you don't know as a kid, like which experience you're going to get. Like, and so that's kind of how I also saw like the Bjorn Baron. Um, yeah, that, that storyline of like never knowing exactly what you're going to get and not knowing if that person is going to like help you or if they're going to actually hurt you. Yeah, I, I would say I'm a fan of it in the book because, you know, like T Tolkien has the tone down that he wants. And this was written before he wrote Lord of the Rings. I don't think he was being affected by this other than, you know, we talked about with Riddles in the Dark. He went back and revised it to make it line up more with Lord of the Rings. But other than that, this feels like it's standalone, self-contained story. Um, whereas here, I think Peter Jackson is the one who's been misled a little better is, is like getting in the weeds, trying to connect everything and make it line up with like an overall mythos that he's creating for Lord of the Rings. 
Um, so uh, less fond of it in the movie for me, at least, but I did like it in the book. I was going to add, James, that you watched the appendices. I didn't. I haven't watched the appendices for this yet, um, but it does make me wonder. It felt a little bit like some of the Tom Bombadil scenes that people were mad, mm. like that they hadn't included, right? Um, and so they extended this, like just for like us Tolkien nerds. It does feel a lot like that, right? It feels so much like a Tom Bombadil character uh, in being a part of nature in that way and kind of remove... I guess this character is more involved in the in the goings-on of the story in comparison to Tom Bombadil in Lord of the Rings. Um, but in, it was, you know, it's fascinating to see their thought process. It's so, it's so interesting to get the perspective of these artists as they're going about making it because while I watch these appendices, and of course it's a documentary, right? So it's very it's a biased take. It's it's telling the, the the audience how to feel and what to think. So when I go through and watch it, I'm like, man, all these the thought processes that they've gone through and the the decision making that they've done and all the different choices that they've made all make sense to you when you hear them tell it tell it to you in that way. But there are times that it just doesn't work on film and and this Bjorn stuff. Like as much as I liked seeing the character, it was a very short section in the novel one chapter basically and here the design is is weird but it's cool it's a little off-putting i think and weird uh i saw that they digitally his eyes are like digitally turned brown in post-production which is something that was a little uncanny for me i uh, looking at it was was interesting but yeah their decision making too and and the way that they decided to have this character show up and what he means for the story and sort of be darker and fight the orcs more and and like leading into what we're going to get with him eventually. I, I think it's a needed addition. I just felt like it was an extended. Can I also interrupt and say like, what was the deal with Legolas's eyes in this movie? Like, yes, same question. Oh my God. So much about Legolas. I don't like that Legolas is in this movie as much right. as I like that. The, like I like Orlando Bloom. I love that character from the original. But we'll we'll talk about that more. Let's talk about um, all this stuff with uh, Azog and the Necromancer mm. and everything that's building up that's supposed to be background information, but is made to be really important in these films. What do you guys think of um, Gandalf discovering this ruin and then heading off and, and to, towards Naz- the Nazgul tombs? And that that's completely added, by the way, which I, I didn't mind. I thought that was kind of fun to just show a scene of him like going into this tomb and seeing that things are happening. But it does bring up this sort of logic discrepancy that I'm like, does it seems like Gandalf at the beginning of Fellowship doesn't have as much knowledge as he should have, or at least the inkling that like, oh, evil has been very recently a- afoot. And <laughs> And uh, I don't know. It's just it seems like he should he should be much more wary at the beginning of fellowship. I totally agree. It He's doing these scenes where he's learning all this stuff and like, that's cool. But now you've created a problem of he should know better by the time fellowship rolls around. Um, you know, I'm interested in and I'm always interested in like learning more about the ring wraiths and, you know, the the witch king and like all this stuff. I'm like, this is cool. I want to know more about this because I know Gandalf has or I'm sorry, Gandalf. I just called him Gandalf. Tolkien kind of a Gandalf figure, um, has all this lore. <laughs> and I'm like, I, it, it's cool to get hints of it, but I want to know more. Um, one of the things I did, speaking of lore, I looked up Smog in like the Wikipedia, like the, there's like a ring Wikipedia, which talks about different characters from Lord of the Rings. So I'm like, there's got to be more like out there about Smog. Turns out not really. He's not really mentioned. He's one of the last remaining great Drakes. And he's from the Third Age. And then it's like, in the Wikipedia, it's like, not much is known about Smog from before the events of The Hobbit. And I'm just like, great, come on. Come on, yeah. Tolkien, you got all this lore for everything else. Like, give me some lore for your sweet dragon. I want to know. 
It was interesting um, thinking about smog, like uh, watching the movies this weekend. Um, and really, you know, as we get to the third movie, like kind of being devastated that uh, that smog dies, right? And smog dies in the way smog does. So, sorry, plot spoiler. spoiler. Smog dies. <laughs> We're full spoilers. Um, you know, you don't feel it as much in the books, but you definitely feel it in the movie that there's um, they're trying to get across that, like, you know, the good people care for creatures and good people care for the ponies and the bumblebees and, um, you know, Bayorn like cares for like all of nature. Right. And that's kind of the background of what it kind of means to be good and that you're taking care of the earth and you're taking care of the land and, you know, evil is destruction of Mirkwood. It's destruction of, and you also see this in the rings of power series where you see like kind of things getting contaminated and dying. Um, and so like good takes care of things. Evil doesn't. Um, and, even in the way that humans fight humans in um, The Hobbit is different than the way humans fight orcs. Like, so this idea of like how we take care of each other. Um, and then it comes to the big dragon, like that's lived for, you know, centuries upon centuries and like, bye later, dude. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. He does die quickly, which has always been, I agree, kind of disappointing. Uh, I, I feel like we're talking about smog just because I like talking about smog, but like I, I kept thinking about like I wanted to see, I, I wanted to know. So we're talking about Sauron, right, and like, his plan and why he's so interested in Thorin, and I don't know. And like it seems like there's some thought about this ring, but we're, I'm unsure what Sauron knows about the existence of the ring and the whereabouts of the ring. Doesn't seem like he knows Bilbo has it at this point. Um, but I kept thinking about like. Now that we know how important this ring is, isn't it really dangerous that Bilbo is bringing it so close to such a powerful entity? Because what if Smog got the ring? Can Smog put it on? What does that look like? <laughs> well, it gets bigger. Remember, in in I don't know that it's canon, but in in the film, it, yeah, it increases in size. It sh yeah, it shrinks. Can you imagine Smog with the ring, like the One Ring? That was also the worry that that like Sauron would be able to influence. Smog as well, right? And like, bring him on his side. And but I, I, I feel like they didn't play that up enough in the movie. Like, I would have liked to know that because, yeah, that's a fun thing to think about as far as like scary. Like, what if Sauron had really been able to bring Smog to his size side because that is an unbelievable power he could have had. That's what Gandalf is worried about. That's why he says to to Thorin, like, you have to take the. That's his motive, I think, to get Thorin to go to take back his homeland. It's like a win win situation because. Any any dark entity that gets a hold of of smog would just get you know they'd be able to decimate any anyone. Yeah, maybe. I mean, it, I feel like that's there, but it, it wasn't as obvious to me that that was what was going on. Smog literally says to Bilbo, like the darkness is growing, like something's on its way, and like you'll be irrelevant. And I'm, you know, I'll probably. It seemed like he was saying I'll join forces with it. So. Oh yeah, you're, maybe. It's weird because like I don't know who which who knows what I I never know and like does he know about Sauron is he even interested in that like is Smog a, a, a creature who would be open to serving someone else because he's so prideful I just can't I kind of can't imagine that I'd feel like Smog wants to be the boss you know there's that one moment during the movie where uh, Smog says like you you know something along the lines of you carry something like something gold like and there's just that four seconds of spark of like, man, yeah, if uh, if Smog got that ring, like things would not be great. Um, yeah. But you don't see like where, what Smog would do necessarily. Like Smog's more like, eh, I'm going to stay in like this moment. So we don't see Smog in like the bigger picture, like um, for, 
for smog making the decisions. It's more like how people are seeing how smog fits into all of the, mm. all the different pieces and all the different cogs of the machinery. I like the idea of like, maybe Sauron would have considered it, but, but smog is almost too prideful to like, s- like serve someone else, even, even the dark Lord. <laughs> I, I almost feel like it would be a situation where they would come to an agreement and work together rather than like be serving under. Or maybe. Like although we do see a lot of times where like, the evil sides can't work together well in, in Tolkien's world. And that's like one of the things that holds them back. Yeah. So the ring, it's interesting to think about the ring. Cause I can you know, and this is jumping ahead a little bit, but you're in this massive pile of gold and he's got it out and he's got it in his hand. He's getting flung around and sliding and slipping and same things going on when he's like in the, in the river on the barrels. And like, you just think of the number and then he loses it obviously in Mirkwood and then regains it. And like seeing that the ring, if it does have, a, a mind of its own and it wants to be taken like at what point is the will of Bilbo to, to hold on to it stronger than the rings will to like because wouldn't the ring kind of want to be lost in the golden pile and be taken by small although it might be lost for, for all time at that point like the you know deep down in a gold pile yeah, it might but, not want to get lost there that's true well it wants to get back to its master right like that's what we've heard so yeah falling in a river might not be a good route for that so maybe that's the only thing I can think of. Yeah. Well, that's maybe the magical reason why he's able to hang on to it through the whole story, right? Yeah. Through all this craziness. All right. So let's talk about some spiders. And yeah. do, are either of you arachnophobes? A little bit. Um, not not bad. You know, like I, I just don't I don't love them. Um, I'm more afraid of snakes, but I, I'm not big on spiders either. Um, and I was thinking about how like if my arachnophobia was worse, this would be a very difficult thing to watch. Um, we do. It does. I feel like we've touched on, it seems like Tolkien had some fear of spiders that kept coming up in his work. Um, I don't know if Peter Jackson does as well, but he really went hard on this. Peter Jackson has said that he has severe arachnophobia. They uh, they talk about, there's a story that he talks about cleaning out a woodshed at one point with somebody in the production and like is like paralyzed by fear from them. So like he's leaning into his own fear in these movies for sure. And they get nasty with it. <laughs> Yeah, they totally get nasty with it. And, you know, it's also interesting to me that if if you're making this film from the perspective of somebody who's wildly afraid of spiders, right? Like, uh, yeah, your focus is on those spiders as like these creatures that are very like aggressive and um, are also having conversations with each other about like, you know, basically how they're going to eat everyone. Um but there's also not a focus on like the webs as much like and so the webs are always there but there's a in the books themselves there's a lot of of like how uh, Bilbo's like interacting with the web and how he's like going around it and all the different um like kind of the webs as scenery and the webs as like part of the story um but in in those scenes in the movie it's spiders like there's webs but it's mostly spiders <laughs> spiders as a vehicle to create another extended action sequence um, if I'm being if I'm being sort of jaded about the whole thing, <laughs> which I can't help but feeling like a little bit. I'm fine with a, a you know, a, a scuffle. I'm fine with like some sort of conflict, but it just they seem to go on for five to ten minutes. And at some point you sort of lose track of what's going on. Like I start to space and I'm like, oh, they did that. And somebody stabbed yeah. this. And I don't know. I, I'm sure it's me being jaded. And I maybe I would have loved it as a, as a kid. And, and part of me still thinks it's cool for choreography reasons but a lot of times it turns into cgi models jumping all over the place and and when you can tell that it is i i do i would argue that it is it it definitely breaks my immersion the only other thing i was going to add on that too is that uh markwood in particular and with the the spiders in particular are a good time to talk about this too because the the scenes where bilbo puts on his ring like around the spiders uh 
there's not that much of a of a difference on the screen between like you know when he's around the spiders and when he has the ring on like and yeah maybe that's some complexity that they could have added if they had like some more of the the ability to like manipulate the screen and change the colors and um and do some different things because it felt all very one note like oh bilbo has his ring on oh he doesn't have it on Mm -hmm. like the only way you could tell was if the spiders were talking in words that you understood i did think that was a cool addition um that i don't remember from the books the idea that he could understand the spiders when he had the ring on because i think in the book the spiders just talk but it's kind of cool that that, that's like an additional power of the ring because i've always felt like and we must have talked about this back in in lord of the rings coverage james but I always felt like it's weird that the one ring seems to only really have like two effects, I guess, invisibility and calling attention to you that you don't want from like dark, the dark one. <laughs> it, I, I think it's it's we our frame of reference is just when hobbits put it yeah. on, though, is the thing. So it's like the idea is that someone of greater power could wield it and do other things. Right. That's always been the implication, but yeah, we don't see a lot of that. So I like the idea of like, oh, all of a sudden now he can understand these spiders. I just thought that was a cool added thing. Doesn't something similar happen in in the Lord of the Rings as well with like the wraiths or something when he put he when he puts it on maybe he, he sees can... the he can see them he can see their like true forms that's true yeah but I thought they could talk to him as well yeah and he, there, there there's some communication that he can do that he can't do when he's not wearing it um mm. can we also tag for later when y'all talk about the third movie of like what's up with Gandalf's ring like oh because that was uh that one kind of comes out as a surprise out of nowhere too like yeah. The elves get rings, the dwarves get rings, the men get rings, and then Sauron has a ring. Yes. And so I want—I guess it is would be kind of out of nowhere for Gandalf to have I a magic ring. I don't remember ring. that, so I'm going to be paying attention to it next time. I don't remember either. Yeah, they said he has an elf ring. <laughs> oh, interesting. So, so in this movie, we got to move on to the elves. We got the wood elves. We got Evangeline Lily show up, and I believe her uh, elven name is Anti-Vaxeril. Does that sound right? <laughs> <laughs> Man, I just, yeah. The, the, <laughs> It's funny to see these like actors like that, like after you have new context for them. Like I, I don't want to ruin this for anybody, but uh, Leticia Wright, who's gonna is like the new Black Panther, mm. is also kind of said some things like that. And I'm just like, man, it's so unfortunate when you have to like like root. I mean, like I, great actor. I've really enjoyed her performances as Shuri and everything. And and it's gonna be interesting going forward to see like how how willing are these companies to stick by these people when they say these kinds of things, you know? Right. Yeah, definitely recontextualize her because I only knew her from Lost and I always thought she was pretty good in that, so. She's Wasp now too. Like, who knows if Marvel's gonna, you know, how long is she gonna be Wasp if she keeps saying stuff oh, like yeah, that? Oh, yeah, you know? Wasp. So anyway, she shows up with Legolas and both of them are unwelcome in this movie <laughs> to me. Um, the the Wood Elves, I know they're a part of the book and I'm fine with them, but yeah, Legolas, I didn't need Legolas in this movie. I hate the way that the elves fight especially once it's not just Legolas anymore and we got all these other elves who can do similar kinds of stuff. And he's so floaty and like physics don't apply to him. He can he he has weight when he needs it, but other times he seems completely light as a feather. It just breaks all immersion for me and and I had problems with it in Lord of the Rings too, but I felt like it was usually more restrained until like maybe the third movie. But this is just like it's too much right from the jump. I don't like it at all. Uh, my my problem and, and like we talked about how there's there's excessive fighting in this movie. There's there's like crazy acrobatic things that they're doing. But my problem is it feels like a different Legolas. It yes. doesn't even feel like Legolas. The character it doesn't feels like feel a totally same. different character. The way that he speaks, the way that he like sort of has one liners that he's dropping. He's grim and like serious in a way that 
Legolas wasn't. And maybe you could say that like he learned from his time and he sort of matured into a different sort of elf when we see him in Fellowship. But he always had this like that ethereal sort of like doe-eyed. I don't know how to explain it other than that. Like he felt in the like original movie in like Lord of the Rings movies in the the original trilogy. Yeah, he always felt like he was like oozing goodness. Like there is like a like a thing about him. They was very trust. You would trust him right away, and he was cool, but also like very collected and and how to hold on his emotions kind of above it all right like he's above all this drama and he this this version is not like that at all <laughs> yeah there's like a point where they say like you know in in lord of the rings they say like you know legolas what do your elf eyes see like and so just this thing that you know legolas like is seeing into the future and is seeing more like than than we can feel and more more than we can see you don't get that in The Hobbit. Like, and, you know, Luke, I'll be the opposite that I love whenever Legolas comes on screen. I'm like, sweet. Like, yeah, physics don't apply. Awesome. I'm in. Like, you know, I don't, I don't need physics to apply with Legolas. Like, but yeah, it, 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 when it's in comparison to all of those other elves and all the other things that are going on the screen, like, he doesn't really get his character storyline. Like, he just basically gets, like, he's in love with Tariel and, she doesn't love him and that's about it like apparently there's like the mandate came down that there needed to be a love triangle because apparently it was originally just going to be keely and tariel and then it came down that legolas also needed to be a part mm. of this so that built in that love triangle and and i would like i was happy to see evangeline lily as tariel because there's no women in the story and there's no women in the lord of the rings films really other than arwen eowyn and galadriel these stories don't really feature women so it was cool to have this this character come in but then to relic like have her mostly have a love story yeah. as you know part of the motivation of the characters a bummer she's to an me. object of desire for multiple male characters yeah i would like to see that not be the case and her just be a badass elf that shows up and helps and like there's you know that she could have even healed someone like keely without having it be romantic and it was just so close to what they were doing with arwen anyway like in the first storyline and i know there's some callbacks there too to the cimmerillion and you know the the elf loving a uh a mortal like the immortal with a mortal um but yeah, it just f- felt more tacked on and didn't really feel like it fit into the rest of, of the story and um, didn't really help build them as characters overall. Yeah, I guess you, you, you can also see like Gimli had like a kind of a cute, I guess, or maybe creepy obsession with Galadriel <laughs> and he like wanted her hair and like all that stuff. Um, so we've seen some evidence of dwarves feeling a certain way about elf maidens. Um, but yeah, the, the, the rep- reprocity between the two of them was kind of strange right off the bat. She seemed like open to it. <laughs> and then, you know, you got Legolas like looming over her at one point and looking all like serious up there. That was such a weird moment. Like that again, does not feel like the character. So jumping back into the summary, the remaining spiders are fended off by the wood elves led by Tariel and Legolas. They also capture the dwarves and bring Thorin before their king, Thranduil. Thorin confronts the elven king about his neglect of the dwarves of Erebor following Smog's attack 60 years earlier and is consequently imprisoned with the other dwarves. Bilbo, having avoided capture, arranges an escape using empty wine barrels that are sent downstream. While being pursued by the wood elves, they are ambushed by Bolg and his orc party, and Keeley is wounded with a morgul shaft. They engage in a running three-way battle down the river, but ultimately the dwarves are able to escape both groups of pursuers. Thranduil then seals off his kingdom when an orc captive reveals an evil entity has returned and is amassing an army in the south. But Toriel decides to leave and assists the dwarves. Legolas goes after her. Meanwhile, Gandalf and Radagast go to investigate the tombs of the Nazgul, which they find to be empty. The company is smuggled into Esgaroth by a bargeman called Bard. 
Thorin promises the Master and the people of Lake Town a share of the mountain's treasure. It is then revealed that Bard is a descendant of the last ruler of Dale and possesses the last black arrow capable of killing Smaug. Keeley is forced to remain behind, tended to by Feely, Oin, and Bofer, as the remaining company receives a grand farewell. Meanwhile, Gandalf travels south to the ruins of Dol Guldur, while Radagast leaves to warn Galadriel of their discovery at the tombs of the Nazgul. Gandalf finds the ruins infested with orcs and is ambushed by Azog. The necromancer overpowers and defeats Gandalf and reveals himself as Sauron. Let's start with the barrel scene. Goes on way too long. It's way overdone. <laughs> like I get the idea that you want to take an, a, a moment from the books that really stands out and is interesting and like play it up more. But yeah, too much, too much. Some of the actors were talking about how difficult that was to film over and over. Some of them said that it was fun. It was kind of like a water ride, but you know, you're in that all day, yeah. uh, wet all day like that. And then uh, it was pretty funny. Martin Freeman got upset because people started admitting nobody was going to the bathroom. You, at some point you realize why is nobody leaving to go to the bathroom? <laughs> and Ma- Martin Freeman got upset because he was like, I'm the one who's like in the water and all of you are in barrels <laughs> and I'm just getting pee all over me. So that uh, I thought that was pretty funny in the in the background of this film. And it does make me wonder, like, because I, I also felt like that it just kept going. Like, you know, you're on, you on that river ride and you had no idea when you were getting off the river ride because like there, there wasn't a clear ending coming at any point. Like, uh, but I also wondered if it would have been better in 3D, if that's like kind of that 3D moment of, you know, getting to go on the roller coaster in the 3D movie. I, would have, The spectacle would have been more. Yeah. Which is, I think, what it was designed for. Um, I just don't think, I don't know. I don't personally like that, but maybe that's just personal taste. I don't know. Did you guys notice those GoPro shots that I was talking about? Where which which ones are you talking about? So when they're in the water, there's these effects that are like underwater shots, but there'll there'll be times where it'll come out of the water, and you can just tell that it's immediately lower quality. Mm. It's like lower resolution. There's grain in the film. The water looks awful, and it just literally looks like something you shot with a cell phone put into a feature film <laughs> that has cinema cameras. I didn't notice, so uh, I'll just I'll just own up to it. It really bothers me. It's just like, <laughs> I can't believe, and, and they're not necessary. They don't have anything, they don't have anything useful in them. They're just a shot of water with like a, maybe a barrel in front of them for a second. You don't need that shot. You cut it every time. It just makes no sense to me. And it's even worse now when you have like the 1080p and stuff where you're watching it at home, like, and that type of stuff is yeah. totally noticeable. It really is. So we don't have to spend as much time on it as they did. Um, let's move on, I think, from it and talk about I guess Bard showing up a Bard, the boatman, the bargeman. Um, and in general, I wanted to say this is the point where I was thinking like, okay, I don't necessarily love everything they did with the city, with, with Lake Town, but I think it's smart to give Bard more backstory, to have him do more, to have him have a family, to have him be a more integral character. That all makes sense to me from an adaptation point of, you know, point of view. And I, I wish that I didn't have such a sour taste in my mouth about everything going on with the elves at this point, because I think I I just am now like watching stuff with my arms folded over my chest, like skeptical, whereas otherwise I would be more open to this kind of stuff. That's interesting because I felt that this is the part that I couldn't get past. This is I, I liked Bard. This is what I wanted out of Bard. Make him an interesting, cool character that they interact with to sneak through Lake Town and everything like that. You can say that he has a family, show his family in passing. But the fact that we kept spending time there. Oh, I agree. We spend too much time there. 30 minute sequence where they're trying to get weapons, like they're trying to go retrieve like that. All of that can go. 
just cut yeah, that whole thing. I guess I agree. I agree that it went on too long and they tried to do too much with it. But the impetus to expand on Bard, I think, is a good one as, from an adaptation point of view. I think that's when you're trying to decide what to do with this story, even if you're going to make two movies. I think you expand on Bard a little bit because he's such an important character and he gets such little page time. I would agree with that. Yeah, I think I think expand his character for sure. I just five minutes, maybe <laughs> extra. Uh, then the politics of meeting the master and the, yeah. the, the worm tongue type character or the what's Alfred his name? Alfred or something. Yeah. Alfred. Yeah. Yeah. They yeah. make him the unibrow. You know, I guess it's in keeping with Tolkien to have like physical characteristics sort of betray your inner villainy but i just don't really like it and uh you know obviously like the ugly characters tend to be the bad ones in in a lot of his stuff um but you know i didn't need i didn't need peter jackson to start introducing more characters like this i don't remember this alfred character at all i do know the master is in the book and he's like talked a lot about as being sort of greedy and not a good leader for the for lake town we got the the bollocks eating scene, which they tried to make it so fucking gross. As someone who has actually eaten Rocky Mountain oysters, uh, as they call them, um, when I was a kid, because uh, I it was kind of a joke played on me that because you know they like that was something my family liked to do. Here's here's something called Rocky Mountain oysters. They're they're like little fried looking nuggets. Have them and then they they tell you what they are after you eat them. Um, they're not that bad, <laughs> honestly, and they don't look like that. They're not all grisly like that. Um, you know, and it's something that people do eat some, you know, some cultures and some places in, in, in America, people eat them. Uh, this was, this was played up to be gross and really gross. With callbacks being sort of the thing that they're going for, I didn't need the callback to the tomato scene from the steward of Gondor. I can tell you that much. Like I didn't need another nasty scene of some guy fucking chowing down on oh, something. Boy. And you could see how it was supposed to be like, you know, kind of showing the difference between Bard and like, so we're playing out the humans and like how the, you know, Bard has these heroic characteristics and the master and Alfred are like the exact opposite, right? Where they're like, not only like doing base things, but they're also like doing um, things that are like immoral and like unacceptable. Like, so I see it from that perspective of like creating this big dichotomy, but they push the dichotomy further and further and they left Bard in this weird like dour thing where he was kind of like sad and dour and um and depressed and kind of one note most yeah. of the time and I don't I I like that actor but I didn't feel like he like pulled through his range like his his voice kind of stayed on the same level for a lot of the different scenes that he could have just given more like more of a heroic like presence to to the film that like didn't really come across his guilt over his ancestors not being able to slay smog I think is a good one to make his story work so I wanted them to focus more on that um and and, and I like the idea of him being this character who has a lot of self-doubt about his ability to rise to the occasion that way when we see him rise to the occasion in the following movie uh, it'll be a it'll it'll work better um I'll be curious to see it again and see if it how it plays I wanted to speak just for people who who enjoy this movie because I do feel like we've said nothing but negative stuff <laughs> almost. Well, we haven't got to smog yet, so that's part of it. <laughs> we haven't gotten to smog. We said we've said that we like smog, but I do up to let's stop here and just talk before we get to smog because we'll move into that soon. I I think that the thing the reason I'm so harsh on this film, and I, I think I go back to how I felt last week, and that's with with the first film, and it's. I'm so I'm happy that these films exist. I'm happy that it wasn't it, it could have been worse. I, I think that we can all agree that maybe if somebody that wasn't Peter Jackson didn't take the helm and have the experience. That's what I like to do in a movie. This movie could have been worse. 
<laughs> could have been worse. And, and all of the people who are working on it, I think it's clear that there's so much effort is put into it and they're so mu- they're up against these time these impossible time crunches and like that that's not fair for those artists and and like like when you watch these appendices and you see what the effort that goes into it with all these amazing like top of their class artists like when when they're all working in unison like this like it's it's incredible what they were able to achieve considering everything and the thing that frustrates me and the thing that the reason i'm so harsh on it is just that there's so much potential here and that they sort of did there's just some decision making that went into it that sort of squanders what could have been incredible and makes it sort of just like more average and and forgettable for for a story that's really close to me yeah and to be fair here too like i actually you know i remember watching the first movies um you know when they came out and and being like i was saying like having loved lord of the rings like and just feeling slightly frustrated that the hobbit didn't um didn't kind of delve into the the good nice parts like <laughs> that like that they could have but also like i watched uh some of these movies when i was um over in ireland on um on a, a study abroad um for i think it was like about eight months like so the, uh, that experience of like watching the hobbit over in ireland was amazing mm-hmm. like we all just piled in their car like way too many people in that car because in Ireland, like insurance is really, really expensive. So like college students don't really have cars like they do over here. Um, and we all pile in the car and like drove over the movie theater and, and watched, um, you know, watch one of the Hobbit movies. And yeah, I just remember that being like, this is good. Like I got no complaints. Like, <laughs> yeah, this movie probably a- could be better, but I got no complaints. <laughs> I have a little nostalgic for it as well. Like when I was in college, I, I just remember when these films were coming out, I was working in a movie theater and like that, like when a film like that is coming out that I like still ha- am so connected to, even though like I didn't know what to expect with the second one. I remember it coming out. There's the Ed Sheeran song that plays in the credits. That's actually kind of fun. And I like that sort of I see fire. I think it's mm. called or something like that. And like I heard that song millions of times cleaning theaters and walk and like so it's funny how even a film like this that I have complaints about, like can have that nostalgia and you'll still remember that, like that, that time capsule of your life in that way. Like I, I feel that way about a lot of films. Like I, I remember just where I was in the context of when the movie came out. All right. I know we got to keep it moving, but I wanted to ask you, Kate, you mentioned that they travel through all these different cultures. And I wanted to ask if like this Lake town scenario or maybe the wood elves, did either of those like evoke certain cultures to you and your folklore background? Well, that's a good question. Um, Lake Town, I kept getting stuck on because uh, just for me personally, it kept having all these callbacks to like pirate cultures, mm. right? And like, um, and specifically now I look back at it, I'm like, that reminds me so much of Pirates of the Caribbean and some of the things that they were doing. Um, so not a specific culture, but more like a, a, a strain of movies and a thread of movies. Um, and so you can see the, that setting in it. Um, and it looks really familiar. Um but the the wood elves in particular definitely have the the kind of Norwegian cold elf feel, um, where you know they're very connected to nature, but also very detached from humanity in a lot of ways. So having that king character who like wants to protect his kingdom and is focused on um, the elvish kingdom and not focused on like the kingdoms of the world, like really makes sense because you know the Norwegian elves like were standing alone like and very much part of nature um, and not as much um, interacting with humanity so when you would see um, when you would see those elves you would see them outside of like your everyday experience and they were this like kind of almost like a supernatural element and um, that element of possibility but not like part of your everyday life cool love that 
Um, okay, so let's talk about Gandalf a little bit real quick. Um, he, he faces off with the necromancer here. We see the reveal that it's Sauron. I thought there was a moment where we see some of the most magic we've ever seen out of Gandalf, which I have very mixed feelings about because I like kind of how subtle the magic can be in Lord of the Rings sometimes. I also felt like this ball of like light versus darkness stuff was giving me very strong like Harry Potter wand battle feelings. And I don't know if like how the timelines line up, but I wonder if one thing is influencing another. 2011, uh, I think was the like 2010 or 2011 was the last Harry Potter film. So, I mean, like if you're looking the at the final, like the seventh one. Yeah. Like the eighth technically. Yeah. Wow. So, yeah, you would have they would have seen all of that. It's very close by. And a lot of the ILM works on a lot of these films. This is usually Weta is is usually um, the Hobbit stuff and Lord of the Rings stuff. But there's interconnect. Like they, they will have to work together just with the number of artists and how intense yeah. some of these. I almost don't like that. Like I want Lord of the Rings magic to look different. Like it. You want that, right? Like in your fantasy world, you want your style, that style to be like distinct for sure. So Thrain is there, who is Thorin's father. And and he's sort of gone insane. All that stuff is is in the extended edition. I don't think he, he was even included. Uh, that the, so he sort of mentions at the beginning of this movie with that the Gandalf uh, Thorin flashback. He mentions his father has been seen going mad in the woods and everything like that, which sets up us seeing him and Dol Guldur, and then uh, we see him sort of reacting and everything, which I, I kind of felt like was crazy and over the top. But then there was one moment I have to talk about. This film, the theatrical release, is the only Peter Jackson Lord of the Rings film that doesn't have a Wilhelm scream. But then in the extended edition, he adds two. And there's one that is like borderline offensive to me, which is when Sauron like reaches out, grabs Thrain and 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 like drags him away. And he's like, Aah! he does the Wilhelm scream. And I was like, too, too much, way too much. And like, I'm glad that that didn't end up in the theatrical cut. But man, it's interesting to see some of these extended clips and yeah, that that Sauron Gandalf battle is really interesting because again, this is like Gandalf. You should you've battled Sauron. You should you should be aware and be like very cognizant of the fact that he can come back at any time. Uh, leading into you know the Lord of the Rings films and things like that. So, mm. and if you were wondering, uh, the voice actor for the Necromancer is Benedict Cumberbatch, who oh. also voices Smaug. Cool to see the lore fleshed out. Very unnecessary for the Hobbit, which is a journey to the Lonely Mountain. Doesn't doesn't have a lot of um impact on that stuff but obviously it will when we see it all fleshed out later all right moving into this last section thorin and his remaining company reach the lonely mountain where bilbo discovers the hidden entrance he is sent in to retrieve the arkenstone and while doing so he accidentally awakens smog while conversing with bilbo smog reveals his knowledge of both the dwarves plot to retake the gold and the return of sauron Back in Lake Town, Bard attempts to bring the Black Arrow to the town's launcher, as he fears what may happen when the dwarves enter the mountain. However, he is arrested by the master and his conniving servant, Alfred, in the process and leaves his son to hide the arrow. Bolg and his orc party then infiltrate the town and attack the four dwarves, but are quickly dispatched following the arrival of Toriel and Legolas. Toriel then tends to Keeley. While Keeley is recovering, he openly admits Toriel's beauty and wonders if she loves him. Legolas leaves in pursuit of Bolg. Meanwhile, Gandalf watches helplessly as Azog and the, an orc army march from Dol Guldur towards the Lonely Mountain. Back inside the mountain, during a long chase, Bilbo and the dwarves rekindle the mountain's forge using Smog's flames to create and melt a large golden statue, hoping to bury Smog alive in the molten gold. They do so, but Smog emerges from the gold, stumbles out of the mountain, and flies off to destroy Lake Town as Bilbo watches after him in horror and despair. All right, well, we get to talk about Smog now, so that makes me happy, um, even though 
a lot of this chase is pretty ridiculous. <laughs> um, but yeah, just extend it. I, I think if it's shorter, you'll like it more. You know, more, but still not. I still it. I don't know. I like. I think it's a good idea to have the dwarves actually interact with Smog directly, whereas that doesn't even really happen in the book. Like he flies out, they go inside. They're like afraid he's going to come back in, but he doesn't, and then that's it. Like he interacts with Bilbo, and that's it. That's why the middle shouldn't have been a movie because that ending. There's no ending yeah. there, and they had to create an artificial yeah, ending. Yeah, but here. I do like them interacting with each other. It feels like that works better for this story. I don't think it's a secret that this is some of the best stuff in the movie, and it's interesting that Martin Freeman interacting with Benedict Cumberbatch and that. <laughs> with the Sherlock and, and, you know, uh, Watson roles, uh, being, you know, part of their relationship. I think it's really cool casting. I love Benedict Cumberbatch. I think he's great in the role of smog. I think he fits it perfectly. And if you haven't seen his mocap behind the scenes stuff, it is so worth it. Like, I think that all three of these films being funded and created are, were worth just seeing the clips of Benedict Cumberbatch fly around on the floor screaming like smog. He commits 100% and I respect the hell out of him mm-hmm. for it. But man, is it not the funniest <laughs> thing? So, Kate, what did you think? What did you think of smog and how he was represented in this movie? Hands down, like it, it still ends up being one of my favorite scenes when they, uh, you know, when all the the gold pours down on Smog and you see Smog and you you feel like he's dying and they're playing out the death scene and then he just breaks away from it and flies out in the air and like all the gold like you know just rains down from the sky and really like cool. he goes and attacks Lake Town. <laughs> It was definitely one of those moments where uh, there's certain film series that you see in this. The, there's that cliffhanger movie, and I, I'm a sucker for it a little bit. Like, I, there's part of me that walks out of a movie when that happens, and you're just like, like I, there, there are people who are very upset. I remember people being upset when I walked out of this one, where they're like, "We didn't even see an ending. What the hell?" And I'm like, "You gotta wait for the next one." And I'm always a sucker for that kind of just like the anticipation of waiting for a movie like that, and like but unfortunately like i was like kind of worried at this point walking out of this movie that like could they pull off a third movie with with what they had left for material and um but but like i said fun to walk out and be like look at that crazy cliffhanger smog it's gonna be crazy to see what he does next well let's back up a little bit to bilbo when he first goes down there alone to talk with him and we see the dwarves behaving kind of strangely here I, i don't know this version of the dwarves sending him in alone rubs me the wrong way a little bit. Um, It felt like it made more sense in the books because the dwarves are not as brave, whereas we've seen the dwarves be really brave here so many times, and Thorin in particular... Like, I just don't, I don't know why he'd want to send him in there by himself. They're, they're already building up that animosity a little yeah. bit. Like he's, he says like, I'm not willing to sacrifice anybody, but this lowly burglar basically. Yeah. Like so. all of a sudden he just doesn't care about him at all. Well, I did say at one point, uh, watching this, that Thorin is starting to get down with the sickness. Um, <laughs> and, uh, he, sure enough, yeah. he is, he is giving himself over to this madness that we hear talked about this dragon sickness where he is getting greedy and starting to care less and, it's it is pretty tragic because we've seen some nice moments between him and Bilbo where their friendship is building. Bilbo stands up for him and, and he like co-signs in his character to the master. Um, and then it's tragic when you see them turning on each other and it makes that that fall so much greater for Thorin of like this is I don't know. It's really depressing to see. And there's two, you know, in the in the book versus the movie, like the you know the book as they're coming up to the mountain, right? Like um, Bilbo is like does not want to go to the Lonely Mountain. Um, in in the movies, like all of the dwarves are like um, enthralled with the side of the mountain, right? 
And so when they get to the mountain, like there's kind of this expectation that like the dwarves are going to like go down into their home and like they know like the layout even (laughs) like they know where Smog could be hiding or they know how to hide. um, And they know like just how everything works inside the mountain. Whereas Bilbo is like, Okay, so I'm going in. Yeah. Like, let's see what's down there. It's like the, the the through the process of an adaptation and changing things. Sometimes this happens where all of a sudden you've changed characters enough to where it doesn't make sense anymore for this thing to happen, and yet you want to hit that plot point because it's so important for Bilbo to go in on his own. So it's an unfortunate stumbling block, I think, in some of the the modifications that got made, changing how the dwarves are, changing their reaction or their interactions. I uh, We talked about it last week a little bit, and I wanted to give you credit, James, because you're the one who said, like, at the end of the last movie, Bilbo is fighting orcs and, and standing up for himself, and he doesn't seem to be this, like, scared little hobbit anymore. And going into this movie, sure enough, like, he seems fully capable. He's He's stabbing orcs again at one point. Like, he doesn't seem particularly frightened. I mean, he's scared, but like he's fully in control of himself. And I don't know. It's kind of weird to me because Bilbo has always seemed like this character who's always in way over his head and yet somehow manages to come out of on the other side and, and do the right thing. Yet here we're seeing a very self-confident Bilbo who, I don't know, it, it, it they've set up this character now to where he didn't have anywhere else to grow. They uh, have, were as bold as to have that scene that's in the, the trailer for this movie where Gandalf says something like something. What happened down in, in that mountain, that goblin mountain? And, and he says, I found something. And Gandalf is like, what did you find? And he's like, he pauses and he's like going to tell him about the ring. And he's like, my courage. And like to say that that he's already found his courage is like where. OK, so he was that that's kind of his arc and he's already found his courage. He's already at that point. Yeah. And so from here on, he's kind of just like one of the dwarves. He's just fighting whenever fighting comes up. And he, you know, he does use the, the he's cunning because he uses the ring when he needs to. But uh, and ultimately, it's not until we see the interaction with Smog again that I think we get the old Bilbo back where he's sort of able to be afraid of the yeah. threats. And I think you also have where, you know, Bilbo is, is afraid. But at the same time, like uh, he can also like use his wits and use his language and refer to like, oh, glorious Smog. So we mm-hmm. have like kind of this language play. Mm-hmm. He's poking the bear for sure, poking the dragon really. The greatest and most enormous of calamities, and like yeah, he has these great names that he calls them as he's sort of buttering him up, and that's all right out of the book. And I talked about last time how the riddles in the dark scene is so memorable and iconic because it's not a battle; it's it's a battle of wits. It's a it's a contest of riddles, and I think that scene sets up this scene, and they're very similar. And I love that in the book, especially, and a little bit here. As they're trading these um, kind of it, it, Bilbo is kind of playing playing games and like being obfuscating his background and, and almost creating riddles himself. And Smog is just immediately figuring out what each one means and the menace that is there and the danger as he like ascertains, OK, you mentioned barrels, so you're a barrel writer. So that means the city and like he's so much smarter than I think Bilbo is prepared for. And that makes him really frightening. And, and that that little game they're playing is very interesting. And it's not a big action set piece. So I like that we didn't have that. And to me, it's kind of unfortunate how much of an action vehicle they made these films into. When you look at a book that is not like its best scenes are not action. A lot of them are these like quieter moments or just two characters interacting and like a to me, kind of an ancient way, right? Like the ancient exchanging of riddles or exchanging of some sort of 
some sort of verbal game that gets played. And does that play back into like anything in folklore you can think of, Kate? Yeah, there's so many like verbal games and and ways that we like, you know, play and interact with each other too. And the the thing that I kept seeing is interesting in this one was that Bilbo thought he was winning, right? Because he was going for the Arkenstone and that was kind of where he was set off and that was what he was trying to do. And so as he got closer and closer to the Arkenstone, he thought he was winning. But at the same time, he's revealing all this information, like, and the game is really like to obfuscate, like you were saying. And so he's not winning at that point, like he's starting to lose the thread and lose the game because he's so focused on the different prize. And so that idea of like, he ultimately loses and they go and smog goes and attacks Lake Town, right? And there's like rains, death and destruction down. Because like Bilbo lost the thread of the game, like he focused on like a different prize than ultimately the game he was playing. And I do really like that final moment where he says, like, what have we done? Like as as Smog is descending on the city, because I do think that gets kind of overshadowed in the in the book, like the culpability of the dwarves and Bilbo in what happens to that town. Oh, I think it's also important here that we see Thorin straight up promises everybody in town. He says, we will share the wealth of the mountain. <laughs> like, it is my promise. And I've had Bilbo say that when I say something and give my word, I stand by it. So that's going to really set up uh, what happens in the next movie <laughs> as being, again, this, this sickness has overwhelmed him. Um, and it works really well. So I'm glad to see that. I think it was a smart thing to have him specifically call out and say, so that we can see next time how wrong it is for him to go back on it. I wanted to ask a little bit, so we've seen a lot of spectacular dragons in the years since this movie and leading up before it. I'm thinking of Game of Thrones and what they've done with dragons, how fantastic they look. I've been watching House of the Dragon. We've seen some amazing dragons there. But for my money, I think Smog still stands up, and, and which is pretty amazing. It's 10 years old now. I can see the the lineage too, whereas I feel like this this dragon has affected what the dragons we've been seeing, not just in Game of Thrones, but elsewhere going forward, I think this this kind of set a standard almost for what this kind of dragon looks like. I highly recommend that you check out the appendices, that the, just the section about Smile, because it's incredible to see the artistry that goes into creating a creature like this and how important, I mean, like, Peter Jackson's talking about like people are coming up to him and saying, you're making The Hobbit. I can't wait to see Smog the whole time. You know, that's all anybody wants to talk about. So he's making the first film and it's incredible. And the history that goes into it and the way the, their decision making process and how powerful of computers they needed to use and how much this is a step up in technology. Part of the reason why it, it looks as good as it does is because they started with like a telepathic smog where he doesn't move his lips and then they went more into like the, the Cumberbatch like motion capture face performance and put more of his face into it and tried to find ways that a dragon could realistically move its mouth because it's so large and elongated in comparison to our mouth and just the 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 technological marvel that smog is and exists as I was reading that like it would take, um, so there's 5,000 polygons that were used on Gollum's face in the original trilogy for, for any time they were doing the mocap. And for the entire entity of Smog, which ended up being the size of two 747s, so two massive planes, it was the scale of him, um, 20 million polygons wow. in that character in comparison to 5,000 from Lord of the Rings. And the, the, the way that they were able to articulate the model, like I said, the way they went from four legs to two legs and had the sort of like fingers on the end of the wings and and they're all that it's amazing and like like you said i i'm taking smog as probably the most impressive dragon i've ever seen on on screen and and the voice uh from benedict cumberbatch as well and the way that he moves around is it's pretty incredible i personally think he's been outdone now but 
he's great and he stands up at the very least to, to a lot of the rest do you have do you have an example what do you think is better on i honestly think some of the stuff on house of the dragon is is absolutely amazing right now some of the best dragons i've seen so i have to say that like i was saying to my husband that like uh so we're watching house of dragons too and like um the the thing that i love about uh the hobbit versus house of the dragons is that like in order to see dragons in um yeah in game of thrones like you have to also watch some like rape and a lot of murder and stuff <laughs> yeah, and like <laughs> in the hobbit like it's it's a little gentler <laughs> yeah but i love in you know when we see smog at one point go over the top of them right and like you you think somebody dropped a coin but in reality it's like all those coins raining down from his scales like that i think is one of the best shots of of like a dragon also interacting with the environment so you get like the scale and the sense of him like that's probably the biggest thing for me too is like the way that we're able to see smog like art like move within the space in comparison to on on game on house of the dragons which they are incredible. There's no question about that. We we get glimpses of them. We see pieces and parts of them. And it's typically like it might be a, a, at night or something like that. And it's like we never get like a really clear, really detailed yet. view. Whereas yet. But whereas with Smog, it's like it's like 40 minutes of just like the most articulate and detailed dragon that we've seen up to this point. So um, I, I just wanted to mention. So you were mentioned to the scale thing. And one of the things I love is great detail is how when Smog wakes up and starts talking and moving around, they can feel it in Lake Town. I thought that really sells the size and danger of this creature, that it literally shakes the earth, and they can feel, oh shit, that he's awake now. And that, that to me, just sells how terrifying he is. And as we're, we're rounding out the movie here and getting towards the end, I, I just want to talk a little bit about this golden dwarf and rings and like rivers of gold and, and you know, mm. Thorn grabbing a wheelbarrow and surfing on it. And like it just again, it's the same thing with the barrel scene. It's the same thing with some of the other scenes. It goes on too long and it gets a little bit too caught up in spectacle and like what I was calling 3D bullshit at this point. It's like it just wants to play with its 3Dness. It's trying to show off the technology, but like it's getting in the way of telling a good story a little bit. And part of that is I think this this plan by the dwarves. It's like 10% plan and 90% luck as it's coming together and um so many of the action scenes feel like that whereas the characters because they have plot armor and there are main characters, they just have so many lucky things go their way. And it all contributes to them being able to to create this massive golden dwarf that then starts exploding in a way that doesn't sell at all for me and like the way that like gold would actually behave. Um, it, so yeah. I'm frustrated with a lot of that, although I will I totally agree with you, Kate, that the final moment of Smog getting covered in gold and then thinking maybe it's been defeated and then he comes out and he's covered in the gold and it all breaks off. That looks beautiful and amazing. I just don't necessarily love how we get there and Again, that's coming back to that problem of spectacle and then also like, is this a movie that is for kids and doesn't have to make a ton of sense logically and like with physics? <laughs> or is this a movie that lines up more Lord of the Rings and where there's a little more of that at least? And uh, it, it tries to do both here. And the sequence, like it, you can get away with it in a movie for kids, but in a movie that is supposed to stand up to Lord of the Rings, I think it falls short. 
uh, one of the big bummers for me is that a lot of it feels unfinished. Like the gold, I think they could have made that look better. Um, so there were some shots of smog that were unfortunately unfinished. And there's also things that you can do as a storyteller where you're setting your signposts and your guideposts so we can see where you're going and where you're headed. So like that, you know, their journey to go have him light the fires and um, and fill up the giant statue and have it rain down. Like it it has motion and purpose if they give it more purpose and if we see the direction that it's going. If it's just they're going in a direction and we're going with them, it turns into that river scene where we're like, okay, we're on the river, we're still on the river, we're still on the river. Like, So I think giving us a little bit more of an opportunity to see what's happening, you know, and what are what are some of the setups and what are some of the things that are going to happen, and then still being surprised by like just the pure majesty of like yeah. the moment of the the giant dwarf, right? Set up that dwarf statue cast thing and have somebody explain what it is before it's super important to the scene. Like, I don't know, when they first come in or or Bilbo could see it at some point and recognize that it's hollow. And I don't know, it just it, it comes it comes together so last second. It feels too convenient and it rubs me the wrong way a little bit. But overall, yeah, I, the smog stuff is the best stuff in the movie. I like the performance by Benedict Cumberbatch and... Uh, I was excited to see going into the next movie. I was still like a little bit like, okay, maybe they can, maybe they can make it all work in this final movie. Um, as much as this one, I do remember being frustrated with and and having moments towards the middle where it was just dragging on and I was getting tired even in the theater. Um, so yeah, very mixed for me. But um, we're not gonna make our final judgment on these earlier. We're gonna wait to the final episode to make our judgment about what we think is the better version book or movie as our guest kate we're we're welcoming you this is your opportunity to to give your thoughts on peter jackson's films especially since you've seen them all especially this movie as it compares to the book um and and where each one shines and which you think is ultimately the better version yeah i think the thing that still stands out for me is that the hobbit movies are are big and epic and they tell a story that drives relentlessly forward like it just moves at a at a really rapid pace um except when it doesn't and then it uh, like the second movie where they're wandering around in Mirkwood, right? Um, but there is just this epic feel to the Hobbit movies and you don't get that as much in the Hobbit book. I think the Hobbit book feels like a story that somebody is telling to you, whereas the Hobbit movies feel like a story that you're down in and you're experiencing. So I think it just depends on what kind of experience you want. Mm. I loved reading the book because I love like that feel of somebody telling me a story and getting getting to hear all the little like narrative quirks that they have and the little transitions and the, the funny little ways that Tolkien um, describes things and talks about even how he's telling the story. He talks about it in The Hobbit, mm. um, whereas in The Hobbit movies, you're watching them and you're in them um, and it's an experience. Okay. All right. I guess that's where we're going to leave Desolation of Smog then. Uh, thank you again so much uh, for coming on, Kate. It's been really good to have a folklorist here and a writer uh, to be able to break this stuff down. Uh, if people wanted to find you online and find your work, uh, well, first off, they can find your work in the bookshop link, which is going to be in the show notes, but where can they uh, follow you online? Very easily at katerestaw.com. And I'm online too much. So you'll find me on Twitter and Facebook and Instagram, um, even when I shouldn't be. <laughs> Perfect. And we'll put links to uh, your social media and stuff also in the show notes. So make sure to check that out, everybody. Uh, well, thank you so much for joining us, Kate. Uh, we'll talk to you another time. Thanks, Kate. Thank you. If you enjoyed this episode, please let us know in the form of a rating and review on whatever app you chose to listen on. Uh, it you know, helps get the word out and keeps our average five stars uh, nice and high. So 
let us know. If you want to support us in another way, we also have a Patreon, patreon.com forward slash ink to film. And we have many different tiers there, but for just $2 a month, you can get our bonus content, which this month we just released this past episode was our, was our Hobbit animated 1977 Hobbit coverage. So if you want to hear more about the Hobbit and, and the original adaptation or one of the original adaptations, check that out. How could you not? I mean, it's got to, you'd want to hear about all the Hobbit for a million hours at this point. (laughs) Um, and connect with us on social media. We are at Ink to Film on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, and also on TikTok now. So connect with us on there. We'd love to see you. So next week, we're going to have a, a former guest join us again. Laura from Why the Book Wins podcast will be joining us. And we're going to wrap up this trilogy here. And we're going to watch the Battle of Five Armies, which I have maybe 5% recollection of. Yeah. And we're going to watch the extended version. So there's going to be scenes in there I've never seen. Uh, man, I, I'm hesitant. I am a little bit worried, but I'm also, yeah, kind of excited. So I'm going to try and go into it with an open mind. Yeah, we're like archaeologists or something. We're like excavating and going in and exploring. <laughs> so like we're there for we're scholarly reasons. Yeah. We'll, we'll see how it goes. Yeah. Uh, so hopefully you will join us for that one. And until next time, keep adapting. <laughs>